1: from KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Are schools ready to reopen? The American Academy of Pediatrics said this week that continuing remote learning could cause more harm than good. They say that social isolation could cause further learning loss and cite that transmission of coronavirus by children is fairly uncommon. Here in the Bay Area, Santa Clara County announced yesterday that they will try to reopen schools for in-person classes, but are prepared to shift back to remote if they see a spike in cases. Others have yet to release a plan. We'll hear from a panel of experts about what K-12 schools are planning to do this fall and what it means for you. That's next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Santa Clara County released guidelines yesterday for reopening schools for in-person classes, but county school officials say districts should have a remote learning backup in case backup plan. I should say in case coronavirus conditions worsen as schools grapple with whether to fully reopen during the pandemic pediatricians this week weighed in with a strong recommendation for having students physically present in schools. The American Academy of Pediatrics says continuing remote learning will increase social isolation, cause further learning loss and exacerbate inequalities. Joining us now to discuss what schools are planning for this fall, Jill Tucker, a K-12 education reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Jill. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Tanya Altman with us, pediatrician at the Calabasas Pediatrics and spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Welcome, Dr. Altman.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me on.
1: Glad to have you and welcome. And we'll also welcome Mariah Fisher, who's president of the Novato Federation of Teachers. And she's also a parent with kids in the Novato School District. Good morning, Mariah Fisher.
3: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: Glad to have all of you. And I'm going to begin, if I may, Jill Tucker, with you. And let's begin by just talking about the divide here. On the one hand, we have pediatricians who are urging back in school and schools opening. And on the other hand, you have the CDC talking about really going and sticking with remote learning to a greater extent then you have parents and parents who are concerned especially parents of medically vulnerable kids or or concerned about other family members being infected so we really have a major divide here don't we
0: yes we we definitely have a major divide I've, i've seen some of the debate come out and uh protests and 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 petitions um when when counties have started releasing their plans um, you know, you have, you have the folk, parents who are very weary of, of uh, kids being at home and they want their kids back in school. Um, you have teachers and others that are concerned about the, the, um, about their own health and others' health if, if everybody returns to school. Um, you know, so there really is this huge divide of what is the best thing to do in terms of, of kids and education in the middle of a pandemic.
1: And there are also a normal uh, enormous number of challenges. I mean, if the schools do open, they're going to have to open with uh, a mindfulness about all the things that need to be done in terms of safety or security.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, this is not only expensive but logistically complicated. Um, you know, normally classes of kids are generally twenty-five to maybe thirty-five kids. Uh, trying to space desks six feet apart or put dividers in between kids in the classroom says have some. Uh, County plans have recommended uh, if they can't space students it is difficult. I mean, schools start in in two months or so uh, for many districts. And so trying to figure out what is the best plan um, and then implement that uh, will be very difficult in this in this shortened time frame. And as we're seeing cases increase across California and across the country, it's throwing Uh, You know, a a, um, curveball to schools and counties as they try to figure out how to open up.
1: We can assume, I suppose, uh, to some degree, that we'll see all kinds of differences because uh, it would appear that each county is going to go along to opening on its own pace or what it decides, whether it's hybridizing uh, remote learning or just opening completely. Uh, For example, the Eastside San Jose School District uh, wants most students to learn at home this fall, and then you've written a good deal about Santa Clara with a whole road roadmap just released yesterday that would mean going back to school.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, not only are counties going to be uh, offering different plans and, and different advice to school districts, but then each district is, is really the ones that, that, they're the ones that are going to adopt the plan. So in one county, you may have, like in Marin County, some schools are planning to reopen with all kids back or some districts and schools. And then other districts are creating hybrid plans um, or going to to full distance learning in the fall. It really is um, based on what their capacity is, what their teachers' unions are looking for, because all of this has to be negotiated, the working conditions, um, how much money they have to implement these things, um, and and uh, you know whether they have the space or or even in, in parts of California, the outdoor climate, to hold classes uh, outside, which which a lot of health officials are recommending. Um, we're going to see completely different scenarios um, from school to school, district to district, and county to county uh, when uh, schools open in the fall. Yeah,
1: you know, some schools are simply too small, and some don't have the outside room that they need. And uh, there are budget cuts which involve custodians who are no longer able to do the kind of sanitizing that would be inquir- required. Jill Tucker, again, is K-12 to education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Tanya Altman is also with us this hour, pediatrician at Calabasas Pediatrics and spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. And as a spokesperson for the American uh, Association of Pediatrics, excuse me, Academy of Pediatrics, uh, Dr. Altman, I'd like to just get your sense of what's really important about moving toward opening and what is really seen as being the necessity of reopening fully.
2: Sure. Well, I do think that, you know, many, all the points that Jill brought up are valid and it is going to vary from area to area. I'm a school physician down in Southern California and work with and advise many schools down here. And it's really going to be school leaders, local public health officials, and parents working together to ensure the safety for children, teachers, and staff. And each plan is going to need to be flexible and ready to switch gears based on the community's prevalence. So even the schools that are starting in person fully may need to be able to switch to remote learning, you know, if we see the numbers go up. And so I think these are all very, you know, valid issues. You know, as a pediatrician, though, we have seen some of the negative impacts of the kids who have been home since March. And again, it's not every community um, across the country. It does vary depending on areas that, that kids the kids live in. But for many, being in remote school just Simply isn't a healthy option for for them and their families. And so I think to the extent that we can all work together to get kids back to school as much as possible, you know, that would really be best. And if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics plans or guidelines that just came out, you know, it really, there are really a lot of examples. So for instance, desks don't need to be six feet apart. If you look at the data of desks three feet apart, which are the WHO guidelines and what they use in many um, countries around the world, as long as kids are wearing masks, it's virtually the same masks with three feet is the same as six feet. So for older kids, middle school, high school, you know, I think that is much more feasible. And when I've mapped out classrooms throughout Southern California, it makes a huge difference if you're talking about three feet or six feet.
1: There also uh, is a difference between lower grade students because they're perhaps less accessible uh, or less vulnerable, I should say, to the infection, fewer than 2% under 18, according to CDC, and possibly even less transmissible. But we're also seeing a lot of concern, and I want to ask you about this specifically, about the uncertainty with respect to multisystem inflammatory syndrome, also very similar in many physicians' minds to Kawasaki disease. This is at the point of kind of low numbers now, but there's, it's a rare disease, but it's a disease that could proliferate and gets much stronger in numbers.
2: Yeah, so you're right. You know, we are seeing that COVID-19 appears to behave differently in children and teens, you know, when compared with other respiratory viruses such as RSV and flu that we do see outbreaks, you know, in classrooms um Throughout the state, every winter. And although, you know, there's still much to learn, the evidence does show that kids and teens are less likely to have symptoms or severe disease. They are less likely to become infected and spread infection. I think these are also, you know, very important points when we're looking at getting kids back to the classroom. Now, MISC is a serious um, illness and seems to be sort of a late stage of having COVID-19. So the kids that are getting this are not ones that have the fever, the cough, whose parents have COVID-19 at this time, but rather their families who were exposed to the virus Weeks before, and that ne- didn't necessarily realize it, or the parents had COVID 19, the kids seemed fine, and then they started to get sick a few weeks later. The, the good news is that it is rare, and I do think the major university hospitals and children's hospitals throughout the country are now very good at treating it. And I know down here in Southern California at our local children's hospital, you know, we've had many cases, and the kids have all. Um, come out okay now that we know what to do and we are treating it very similarly to Kawasaki's yet differently because it's also, you know, has its own nuances in terms of the parts of the body, the parts of the heart and blood vessels that that it affects. Um, So I think this is something that, you know, you can see with any virus. And again, this is why teachers School nurses, pediatricians need to be aware if you have kids with fever for more than a few days that are not getting better, that look really sick, that have abdominal pain, diarrhea, super lethargic, you need to see your pediatrician right away. But pediatricians know how to identify this illness very quickly and get kids to the appropriate hospitals to treat them.
1: We have some concerns, though, also that have been expressed widely about the fact that here in California you have 800,000 disabled students. That includes Down syndrome and cerebral palsy, uh, other disorders that really can affect a child's immune system. And there's understandably a great deal of concern.
2: Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, we're kind of weighing the, you know, all of the information. So for many of those children, they're actually getting more services when they're in school than when they're at home. And this is why I'm urging every family to talk to your own pediatrician. I have individual plans that I've come up with, you know, with my different families based on the needs of their kids or other family members who may be high risk. And there's Some kids that I'm saying, you know what, even though your child has asthma, even though your child has, you know, this syndrome or CP, as you mentioned, you know, I do think that they will do okay um, being back in school. And these are the benefits of the services that they get while they're in school. And there's others where I'm saying, you know what, mom, you're home. You don't have to go to work. You've been doing a great job of supporting your child. You know, why don't you just keep them home for another six months? And this is why we do need a variety of options. But a lot of families throughout California aren't able to stay home with their kids. And I think that's something that, you know, we also have to, to take into account. And in some ways that might make things, you know, more feasible if you have a portion of the population who wants to be home and homeschool their kids through a local school district. And the others really want their kids to be there in person because that would actually just shrink the class size and make it a little bit easier to cohort kids space them out, you know, and use all the hand-washing, disinfecting techniques that we know will will decrease viral spread. And, I mean, this is really why there just can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. This isn't a linear math equation. It is going to vary so much based on city-to-city, school-to-school, you know, and and what's feasible.
1: Yeah, and I thank you for mentioning the equity issue because I think it's very important. There there are parents who simply don't have the resources to continue homeschooling. And that brings me to Mariah Fisher, who, again, is president of the Novato Federation of Teachers and also a parent with kids in that district and uh, there's a sense uh that marin is moving toward well actually just yesterday released a plan and there's been uh, a strong response to the guidelines uh, of uh, the aap uh where do things stand now i mean are you thinking about maybe some kind of hybridization or phasing things in mariah uh
3: i wish <laughs> uh no in Nevada. we are not we are not looking at any sort of phase in um which kind of uh, hits the nail on the head when I think about what I would what I would like for my students and for my children. Um, unfortunately, Nevada's looking at a budget cut this year of almost two and a half million dollars, and you know we're we're talking about you know the logistics and the expense are very real for us. I, I try to envision what it looks like. I teach middle school. My campus has about 600 students on it, and August 20th, when that door opens, 600 students rolling in, uh, a third of which have never been on campus before as uh, new sixth graders, and um, what it's going to look like and how it's going to be safe, and if really opening the floodgates on day one is the best plan, and I and I really don't think it is. I, I think the entire world has gone with a phase opening, and and I'm concerned that we're not going that route. We're looking at 25 students per cohort. Uh, As a middle school teacher, I would see three cohorts a day, so that's 75 students a day um, with a total of 150 students in a 48-hour period. Uh, That deeply concerns me, especially since I have three children who will have their own numbers, and I've done the math, and that means that my family is going to be exposed to 500 students, Um, and that really worries me. Uh, I understand
1: your worry, uh, and certainly I understand your concern about one size not fitting at all, but didn't Marin Superintendent Mary Jane Burke say there's flexibility for each district?
3: She did, and uh, Novato is uh, not really playing with flexibility. They're following her guidelines pretty pretty straight lined and uh, you know Nevada is funded per student per day we are funded differently than a huge portion of Marin and the budget is always an issue and for our for our teachers and our certificated staff you know um, on a normal year my garbage in my classroom is emptied every other day because of budget cuts and so you know fast forward when we open my doors in 7 weeks um i'm I'm supposed to have the confidence that you know we're we're tripling quadrupling this sanitation um and i and I love our classified staff it's not it's not on them that you know our my garbage is being emptied every other day it's a budget cut and you know i'm I'm very worried about the logistics I'm very worried about the safety and i don't I'm worried about the students walk on campus and a week later. We go back into crisis learning March through June. June was not distance learning. It was crisis learning. We didn't know what we were doing. We had 48 hours to figure it out. And, you know, with distance learning. Now I 90% of what I did, I would do differently. And, um, you know, I just, I really worry about you know, five days a week for 7,000 children in Nevada, starting on August 20th, when we still, you know, can't have any sort of sense of normalcy. Um, is it, It's very concerning.
1: I can uh, certainly understand and empathize with your concern. I should also lay out a little bit what the Marine Guidelines call for. They call for schools to return to in-classroom instruction five days a week using antiviral safeguards, such as masks and physical distancing, daily health screenings, and regular school building cleanings. Uh, Is there some kind of compromise here, Dr. Altman? Let me go back to you, Tanya Altman.
2: You know, yeah, thank you. I wanted to mention, um, you know, and I totally understand how you talked about, you know, being exposed to 150 students a day. But I I do wanna mention to everybody a little bit about contact tracing and what the guidelines are for transmission. So when somebody does test positive with COVID-19, you go back and you contact trace everyone that person has been in contact with for 48 hours. And close contact means within six feet for more than 15 minutes. So therefore, if you think about a Miller High School teacher, theoretically, and it's not always possible, if they're standing at the front of the room and they are not within six feet of their entire class, you, you actually are not necessarily exposed to the entire class, and it would not be um, – those numbers wouldn't add up with the contact tracing. So, yeah, there are other factors to, you know, to, to consider. Are you all touching the same doorknob and things like that? But I think there are ways, especially for teachers of older kids, to actually be, protect themselves and not be exposed to the high numbers. When you talk about younger kids, it's not as practical because teachers can't stand at the front of the room and be six feet away. So it's when you look at the classroom and map it out, it's probably only that front row of kids that would be in your contact tracing cohort. So that does change the numbers that you're talking about. But my other question for you is each of your cohorts throughout the day, are those kids staying together with the other students or are they mixing with each other? Because that's going to make the numbers go up when we start chasing our tails and running around after positive COVID tests and who's been potentially exposed.
1: Yeah, that's a key point. Another key point is that there are parents who are certainly concerned about uh, contact tracing uh, for reasons of uh, surveillance and the idea of personal privacy and the like. But let me go back to you, Jill Tucker, and uh, let's talk about what we know about the attitude the teachers have. About a third of the teachers in California are over 50. They're more at risk.
0: Yes, definitely. And, and what I'm seeing, um, a lot of districts, counties, um, teachers unions are surveying teachers in Eastside, uh, in, in San Jose. Um, you know, what they found was in surveying students, parents, teachers and staff, is that in general about 40% of them aren't sure about going back or don't want to. Um, more than 50% of the adults are saying they they uh, would prefer distance learning. Um, a majority of the students, but just slightly a majority, uh, want to go back um, without distance learning. So you know, but what, what we're seeing is 20 to 40% um, of those of teachers surveyed are are really leery about going back. Uh, in the fall, and, and it's unclear what that will mean, um, you know, whether a, a significant number of teachers in Nevada or in some of the, uh, in Mill Valley, where they're also planning to open up pretty fully, how many of the teachers are going to say, I can't go back because of physical health issues that they or their family have um, or their children have or, or, or others. Um, and it's really unclear at this point how many teachers will be willing to go back and stand in front of that classroom of middle schoolers, um, you know, 100 every 48 hours or more. And um, and we just don't know that yet. So so it really, a big question that I have is, you know, for the districts that are planning on fully reopening, are they going to be able to do that with the staff um, that, that will come back? I mean, also custodians and office staff and and others um, as you said, you know, with an aging population of teachers, uh, those over fifty, those over sixty, um, will they come back? Uh, will there be enough staff to clean and and teach the kids? And, and i when I talk to district officials um, and superintendents, they they don't have the answers to that at this point.
1: Jill Tucker again is K twelve uh, education reporter with the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, and. Uh, I'm going to give out the number now. If you would like to join us, if you have questions or you simply like to let us know your thoughts uh, or feelings about going back to school for your children or if you're a teacher or if you simply uh, are concerned about it or want to raise some questions, please feel free to join us now. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. Join us at that number, toll-free, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And let me go back to you, Mariah Fisher. How much of the decision over in Nevada had to do with the fact that the state funding depends on essentially auditing the number who are in the seats of the classrooms?
3: Um, you know, I'm not really sure. They They have really, the district has... Come up with this plan. It was released yesterday. Uh, it did have some teacher input back in the beginning of June, which feels like years ago. And um, with this new plan and this big focus to have students in the seats every day, you know, it's we are funded per student per day in my district, and I, I think there's a real push to get students on campus so we can secure our funding. And I and I think the misconception is. You know, just because students are, are on campus doesn't mean education is going to look like what it used to. We're talking about not, no singing, no science labs, like group science labs, no moving from your seat, that whole, you know, grab your elbow partner next to you and work on this project. We can't really do that when they're not only are they considerably far apart, but the volume in the room when your group member can't sit next to you really is gonna make group work not possible. I, I I measured out my room and I sitting in the front of the classroom, looking at where all of my students would be sitting and those poor children in the back row, I, I will have to yell at to them. They will have to yell any questions back to me. I can't go talk to them. I mean, there is a huge disconnect between where the teacher is sitting in the front of the room and where those children are in the back.
1: Yeah, I feel your pain. Uh, And we're going to go to a break and then we're going to come back and find out more. Uh, Some of you who are listening may want to raise some of the obvious questions. What about extracurricular activities? What about field trips? What about assemblies? Uh, The guidelines are there, but they're not easy to follow. We'll return. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The American Academy of Pediatrics has put out guidelines and pretty strongly urged schools to reopen and pretty much uh, decided that remote learning is meaningfully uh, associated with learning loss. In fact, uh, they cite a good deal of research along those lines as well as increased social isolation. And they claim that it uh, breeds serious social and emotional and health issues and hits particularly uh, black and brown populations, the worse, and actually harms the disabled, so they cite a great deal of data and intra- and excuse me uh, uh, certainly support for the idea that schools should be open that they 're fundamentally uh, tied to development and academic progress. but you heard some of the arguments that are of concern with opening too soon, and certainly those arguments uh, seem to be habitually among many professionals who are in the classroom, teachers, principals, and so forth. uh, You may want to weigh in here, and if you do, I invite you to join us at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. Number again for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have or concerns to the forum at kqed.org. And let's begin with Tim as our first caller. Tim, join us. You're on the air.
4: Hi, good morning. Thank you all for a great conversation. Um, I'm, I'm a dual-income uh, household. My wife and I are both essential workers, and as our district is wrestling with the balance of safety and education, I, I can't help but think that how, how are uh, parents supposed to handle um, cohorts, and if you only send your child to a half day of school, what is child care options out there, and how does that stay safe? Um, and then the disconnectedness between school district policy decisions and having multiple solutions for families, some families can stay home with their their kids if and some can't like we can't
1: You raise some i think uh elemental and if I dare say so essential questions here and let me go to you, Jill Tucker, spend some light on what Tim has raised for our concern
0: yes i i I think that this is an issue that districts are are trying to consider. Um, to provide some flexibility, uh, not only for teachers and staff, but, but families, um, because you're going to have some families that do not want to send their children to school for, for health reasons. Um, so pretty much all districts are going to have to have a distance-only plan uh, available. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's a little harder to uh, plan for families that need that, uh, that are essential workers that go to work. Um, a lot of these are low income families uh, that are in the service industry that that don't have any other child care options and are really struggling. Um, I, you know it's it's one of those things that districts are trying to consider. I think that a lot of districts, um, based on recommendations from uh, physicians and health officials, are to try to get the elementary school kids back um, because they do have lower rates of infection. They believe lower rates of transmission. And those are the kids who need um, supervision and, and things like that. And that the middle school and high school kids, there's a little more flexibility in terms of learning. Um, the, but ultimately the issue is, uh, regardless of, of whether they have flexibility in plans for kids to be on campus or not, um, you know, I, I do think at, at a lot of times throughout the year, we're gonna see cohorts having to stay home to quarantine. Uh, We're going to see entire schools closing or districts closing down because of case counts. Um, This is something where families, schools, communities are going to have to be prepared to sort of go in and out of of school and quarantine uh, as the pandemic rages uh, through our communities.
1: Well, look what we're experiencing now, we're going to be talking about it in our next hour, all these surges that are going on, they're going to have to adapt to that, presumably, aren't they? They're going to have to have fallbacks or, some, I mean, they may be opening up, but opening up with a big asterisk.
0: Yes, definitely. And and I think some districts are are, are planning for that. Um, San Mateo uh, High School District, they are they have a phase plan of phase one through five, one being complete distance learning, five where all the kids are back. Um, Phase two, they're planning, they're talking about starting at phase two, where you have children with higher needs, maybe special education students and others back on campus, but most other kids still in distance learning. Um, But they are reopening campuses, so kids can come in and do the work in cafeterias because they need Wi-Fi or other types of things. So they're trying to think creatively about how to get kids on campus, how to accommodate the needs of all families. Um, but that district, for example, has flexibility to go up and down the scale. Um, other districts, where they're fully reopening, um, they would have to either quarantine cohorts, or if they have, if the county advises for them to shut down entirely, it's kind of an on or off switch, right? Rather than the dimmer, dimmer that the governor talked about. Um, so really, you're seeing a lot of different ideas come out of districts. Um, you know, some are super creative. Um, others are really kind of leaning one way or the other fully distanced or fully reopened. Um, but everybody including San Santa Clara County, uh, basically urged every district to have a plan to reopen and bring kids back and a plan to do distance learning. So we- there's so many unknowns right now.
1: Indeed. And I'm going to bring another caller on with us. Uh, Brian joins us from Mill Valley. Brian, welcome. Uh, good morning. I'm uh, calling to find out uh, Who can address uh, the latest uh, law passed by the
4: state legislature back uh, last week on June 23rd, AB 77,
1: uh, which basically uh, restricts local control of school schedules, uh, more specifically restricting the conditions under which a school district may engage in distant learning. It mandates that uh, daily instruction has to take place five days a week for all students.
4: Does anybody have any uh, information on AB 77?
1: Can you shed some light here, Jill? May I go to you again?
0: Yeah, the the, the legislation really does, it it focuses a lot more on um, trying to get kids back in the classroom, or that should be the priority as as folks make uh, decisions about that. Um, Instruction five days a week is, I think there's still some question about, um, how that would be, it doesn't necessarily mean that kids have to be in instruction for seven hours a day uh, if they are in remote learning. Um, so, you know, the, the, the idea that even if they're distance learning, kids are going to be sitting in front of a computer with their teachers for seven hours a day it is not what we're going to see. Um, you know, whether instruction or distance learning is five days a week, um, you know, will we'll look different. It, it, we're not talking about kids sitting in front of a computer all day.
1: And I want to get some responses uh, from uh, both Tanya Altman and Mariah Fisher to some comments that are coming in. Let me go first to you, Mariah Fisher. Uh, This kind of echoes uh, and dovetails in some ways with comments we've heard from you this morning. This is Kristen, who writes, as a high school teacher, I usually see up to 168 students per day. My district does not have a plan yet. I'm very concerned about how we can open safely, let alone thinking about emergency drills or evacuating for emergencies. I want to meet the students in person, but it needs to be done very conscientiously. And that pretty much uh, sums up a lot of your concerns, doesn't it?
3: It does. I, I think there, you know, there are so many unanswered questions and you know, part of the stress factor for teachers is right now we are on our unpaid leave for the summer. And so all of this um, worry and anxiety and wondering and, you know, um, kind of all consuming thoughts about work is is during this time where we're unpaid and we're, we're trying to really respect our own personal boundaries. Um, in Nevada, we have three days of paid time before we start work, and you know we really need more than that. And you know, I think same to um, this teacher with her concerns. You know, it, there are so many unanswered question questions. It goes back to the logistics, and um, you know, again with the budget, the the school districts don't have the means to say we're going to have you all come a week before school starts. So we can talk about these logistics, lift your anxiety, answer your questions, run through some scenarios where we are have, you know, we have our students come, let's really break down what a fire drill looks like now with these restrictions, where usually we just get an email and say there's a fire drill tomorrow. So, you know, it's there are so many unanswered questions and we're we're not at the table helping to find the answers. And that really is where the problem is. We are the ones in the classroom. We need to be at the table helping to answer these questions. And we're not.
1: Mara Fisher is president of the Novato Federation of Teachers. And let me go back, if I may, Tanya Altman to you. Tanya Altman is pediatrician at Calabasas Pediatrics and spokesperson for the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, Getting a lot of comments along these lines. And I'd like to get your response Dr. Altman, uh, Brett writes, for example, kids returning to school this fall is not a good idea. Kids are not going to social distance and they are not going to keep their masks on. And uh, Amelia says the representative of the American Academy of Pediatrics said the teachers are only really susceptible to their first row of students in the class and that they will be safe if they can stand six feet away from their students. How many maps do we need to have them see in a church, restaurant, bus, etc., where a huge spread out group got sick from one person? Dr. Altman? So,
2: um, yeah, I think there's a a few important questions there. First of all, I urge everybody to take the Coursera Johns Hopkins Contact Tracing course online. It's free. Anyone can get certified. And it's really interesting, and you learn a lot about how the disease transmits. And, you know, I'm not saying there isn't any risk, and I I agree with all of Mariah's concerns, and, you know, I I wish I could help there in your school district but the districts that I'm, you know, helping down here we we do have teachers involved in, you know, in making the guidelines and the plans that they want to see and so I know that every district is different and um and so it is going to look look different everywhere as Jill mentioned. Um, so that's, so that 's sort of the, the first question. The other thing is you know in California, we are very lucky when i when I talk to schools on the East Coast they can 't do outdoor things so we 're having singing programs outdoors right now i 'm overseeing summer camps. And sports groups with young kids that are wearing masks and are distancing outside, and they're having a great time, and they are following directions. And I think sometimes we don't give our kids enough credit, you know, and if they see the parent role models, um, you know, doing all the right things, you know, in, in most cases, they will follow. Now, if you're talking about very young kids' preschools, you know, that, that is a different um. Scenario, But I've been approving so many plans um, for different schools in my area, and I'm really impressed at how, you know, the cross-country teams can run distanced and how the soccer teams can, you know, have no contact soccer right now to get out there. Um, and how the kindergarten um, camps they wear their mask 50 50 when they're indoors they wear it when they're outdoors they don't and they try to stay a safe distance away and they take turns on the bars you know on the playgrounds. and so nothing's going to be perfect it's all about decreasing risk and as a parent if you're concerned you do have the option to keep your kids home but we know from surveying families across the country that's just not an option for everyone and so we're trying to you know give guidance that can be tailored to different families, different communities and different districts. I mean, I think, you know, we're all in this together, and we all have to work together as a community to keep each other safe. And so education is also so important, you know, to let families know if you're part of our school, if you're part of our area, this is really what we expect you to be doing on weekends and at nights. We need everybody to play a role in keeping our community safe. I know Dr. Fauci talked about this yesterday, and I know it not, it's not, doesn't always work this way in the United States, but we really, we really need to, um, to stress the importance of our communities that we are all in this together other, what family does will affect the others. And so I think, um, I think that's hopefully going to be a benefit and something good that comes out of, you know, the, at least many of the communities that I've been working with here in Southern California.
1: If we can only spread that idea like the virus is spreading. Uh, I know. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just read a couple of tweets that are coming in here because they're suggesting alternatives. Uh, Jill Tucker talked about a lot of creative ideas and ideas that have been forward, and I simply want to get these in the mix. Michael tweets, for example, I don't see how schools can maintain spacing. If every kid goes to school every day, why not have kids at Attend in person on alternate days three days one week and two days uh the next and that's certainly been uh put forward uh, and here's another idea from Lottie, which has been put forward she writes teachers and students are indoors this increases the chances of exposure and six feet is not enough when people are talking what about plexiglass shields and half-sized classrooms are splitting the students in two cohorts cohorts excuse me to come in on different days so i wanted to get those uh, involved here and uh let's get another caller on divya joins us divya welcome you're on the air
4: Hi, um, my name is Divya, I'm a teacher in Oakland and I want to start by saying I think you know the teachers are we want to go back into the classroom because we hate distance learning like it's really difficult to be away from students and we didn't sign up to do this job this way but at the same time we have to prioritize working and learning conditions and I think you know student um, learning conditions are dependent on teacher working conditions not just teachers but school workers and so we're seeing we have 21 nurses in the district for 37,000 students we have um, an abysmal lack of custodians and A lack of um, hazard pay and support for custodians. Um, We just had a massive cut to SSOs in our district. We lost 48 out of 86. So school staff are really being hit. And then beyond that, I think teachers, if we're in this sort of limbo between is it going to be distance learning, is it going to be hybrid, Um, and we're constantly having to change our expectations for what we have to do in the classroom, that impact students directly as well, right? Because we can't constantly be accommodating and relearning how to do um, new things. You know, two weeks from now, it might be something different or it might be a different format. And I think that's, the the added stress on teachers um when in the uncertainty i think really has to be considered and and that's why i think i just want to advocate for planning for you know choosing how it's going to be now which i hope would be robust distance learning for a significant period of time so that we can really get good at doing that because we're constantly having to learn new things
1: devia i thank you for that call appreciate hearing from you and uh before I go to any more callers, I'm going to go back to you, Jill Tucker, and I want to ask you about what's being considered uh, in terms of school districts here in the Bay Area or elsewhere that you know about with respect to students who have second learning, uh, excuse me, second language uh, challenges.
0: Yeah, this is th- these students, along with special education students um, are, are uh, uh, among the most at risk for learning loss and and other effects of, of not being in school. Um, and, and when districts talk about either phasing in or having certain kids back in school so that you can only have, you know, a handful of kids, for example, they talk about English learners as those that would be the first to come back um, so that they can um, be with their teachers. You know, learning a new language is is, is um, about seeing faces, about interacting, about, um, you know, being being with their teachers so they can um Uh, learn not only the content of academics, but but English um, in in the classroom. So these kids are a priority in many of the plans as people move forward. Um, But, you know, if it's fully distance learning, then those kids will still be at home. Um, I do think if if districts are phasing in like San Mateo or others, um, these kids will be among the first to come back.
1: And let me go back, uh, Tanya Altman, to you. Uh, Tanya Altman, again, is a pediatrician at Calabasas Pediatrics and spokesperson for the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Let me get your response to uh, a question that one of our listeners raises. It has to do with, um, uh, well, we've been talking about to some degree, but uh, the, the, the lack of certainty with respect to um, the transmissibility that comes from younger Children, or even from children under the age of 18, Um, this listener says, you know, I I want certainty. And I guess uh, we can't be certain, really, can we at this point?
2: I mean, we've known about this virus now and been studying it for six months. Um, I think there is a lot of uncertainty, but we are learning more every day. And as the time goes on, you know, we we are as pediatricians, you know, really, really feeling a little bit better about, you know, our kids and how this virus does affect them and how most of them that are catching it, you know, are doing okay. That said, it is still so dangerous, you know, for so many people across the country. Um, You know, I think I'm, I'm so unfortunate that, you know, that we are where we are right now in California. Because if you go back six weeks ago, I was so optimistic and I was working 24 seven on all these back to school plans. And we were doing such a great job here with everyone staying home. And I was saying, you know, I'm happy to stay home all summer if it means getting our kids back to school safely. As as a pediatrician, that is my goal to do what's best for the kids. And now with, with numbers the way they are, there is a lot of uncertainty and we are gonna need to be flexible. And I think, you know, in some ways, as long and as And forgive me, the
1: numbers are going up in California as we yes have to keep yes, coming back numbers, to it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. With the number, the numbers are going up in California. I'm seeing it in my own practice. And luckily, you know, all of my families that have it are are doing OK. Um, but it is something that I talk to my own kids about every day. I have a high schooler, a middle schooler, and a kindergartner um, coming up in the fall. And we talk about how, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're excited to learn whether it's in the classroom or on the computer and and things that we can do differently and, you know, ways that we can still interact with our kids. And I think it's all about, you know, managing expectations with your children and keeping their minds open and flexible. And the goal is really – to keep kids interested and excited about learning, however that learning looks. I mean, ideally, yes, all kids should be back in the classroom, and that's sort of, I think, the goal, the green plan that most schools are going for if you're doing like a green, yellow, orange, red, such as the schools that I was on a webinar with yesterday are doing, whereas green, everything open, in a safe method. So that doesn't mean last year before COVID, but what green would look like this year and red is completely virtual and how we're going to fluctuate between all of them. Again, as Jill mentioned, prioritizing the kids that do need to be really on campus, whether it's because their parents both work, their essential workers, or those kids in order for them to learn and get their services, you know, would be better suited to be on campus. And it's not easy, you know, it's not going to be the same for everybody. And I think, um, We all just need to be open-minded and flexible and and do our best. I mean, this is really unprecedented times. And, you know, I wish I I used to say this is temporary. And, I mean, it's still temporary, but unfortunately we don't know, you know, how temporary this is anymore. And I think we're talking about an entire school year now and, you know, not just a season.
1: A lot of people have been uh, saying recently they're getting used to quarantining and uh, nobody knows how long it's going to have to last if you're quarantined or In many cases, people can't even afford to be quarantined, but that's another story. I want to go back to Mariah, if I may, Uh, Mariah Fisher, who's with us as well. uh, Get your response to a comment from a listener here, uh, Mariah, who writes, um, uh, echoing, um, excuse me, I want to make sure I find the right comment here. Uh, As usual, this listener writes, the most powerful union in California gets their way, and our kids, the majority very low risk, are the victims. They are suffering and, and uh, in the meantime, from depression, isolation, and extremely substandard or even non-existent education, juniors and seniors aren't being allowed to return to campus in our district at all because teachers don't want to come back to work. Uh, you finding that in Novato? Teachers not wanting to come back to work?
3: No. I, and I think that's where there's a huge mis, misconception. And I I want, I was wanting to respond also to what Tanya said that um, about the ideal is that we're all back. And and I could not agree with that more. Um, there, people think, and like this person um, who wrote in, that we don't want to go back. And we do, with every ounce of ourselves, want to be back in our classrooms. I have been a classroom teacher for 17 years. Uh, two days after crisis learning in March, I was crying in my principal's office I, I have no idea what I was doing with crisis learning and, and just needed to be with my students and in my classroom and uh, wasn't able to do that. And, um, I, I, you know, there, Forgive
1: me, Mariah. There's there's certainly a lot of talk about kids needing to be back in the classroom for mental health and all I, and the, I, all I, of the other things, the but case. teachers too need to be back in the classroom for it, mental health.
3: Yes, exactly. Ask my husband and my children. I need to be back in my classroom. Um, but we need to be safe, and if if one of my students or or my you know mother who lives with us who has dementia and is in her seventies, you know if if I am the result of a system where somebody that I'm in contact with um, gets sick, that's on me. That that's on me saying that I agree to these conditions that I, you know. I'm willing to walk in, and I'm willing to put myself, and my students, and my family, and my mom, at risk because of the budget. And this is the best we can do. And so, I, the union, is not saying we, what we want is to not go back. That is that is absolutely incorrect. We want to go back, and we want to do it safely. And opening the floodgates is not the answer.
1: Mariah Fisher is president of the Nevada Federation of Teachers, and our next caller is joining us, and that's Bianca. Bianca, welcome. You're on the air.
0: Good morning. Thank you all for this wonderful conversation. Um, I had a question for the public health officer. Could you please speak to the transmissibility of the virus for high school-age students? And then I also wanted to make one comment. I hope that public health officers are not making determinations about contact tracing based on the notion that teachers will be in front of the classroom and thereby be six feet away from students, because that's just not realistic. Teachers are constantly circulating throughout the classroom and kids are constantly circulating in and out and around classrooms. Thank you. very
1: much. uh, Thank you for the questions. Although Tanya Altman is not a public health officer. In fact, I'm uh, (laughs) public health officers, by the way, have been under siege. I mean, it's terrible what's been going on. They've been threatened and so forth. And, uh, I find it very disconcerting. But uh, Tanya Altman, you want to answer her question about transmissibility, if you would?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. If you're talking about high school students who, you know, don't necessarily lick the desk and each other like preschoolers. Right. And they can wear a mask when they're in the classroom, you know, stay at a safe distance, disinfect their own seat and desk when they come into the classroom and wash their hands. It is um, a much lower rate of transmissibility from younger kids who are in more contact with each other. Um, So I think that is one benefit there. So, again, it's going to depend how far you can space them out around the classroom. Where we do see more transmissibility with um, high school students, and what my concern as a pediatrician is, is in their behavior outside of school, honestly. It's when they're, you know, hanging out after school, on the weekends, and that's why we're really trying to educate this population about, about the fact that, you know, sharing a drink, being too close with your friend, huddling together, things that they do outside of school are more going to put them at risk, and are there ways where they could sort of self-report, you know, I'm worried I had risky behavior this weekend, you know, maybe I shouldn't be sitting next to somebody else in school, or I should get tested, and these are things that, you know, we're working on in terms of education for this for this age group. Um, In terms of... um yeah, as you said, you know, I'm not a public health official. I'm a private practice pediatrician. I do spend a lot of time volunteering, though, to help districts, to advise public health, and to work with American County Pediatrics. You know, as a pediatrician, my goal is really just the health and safety of all of our kids, whether it's, you know, how they learn, how they, you know, stay safe, how they avoid getting sick, and then also everything that goes together for the family unit and really trying to work with families to figure out what's best for them. I have families in my community that are working on getting together and forming, you know, little, um, social bubble so they can take turns after school parenting the other kids because they're worried their kids are going to get out of school at noon and they can't pick them up. For instance, the nurses in my office, they came to me yesterday and said, what happens if our kids are in school a half day, two days a week? How are you going to help us with this? And so I'm looking to see, like, wow, can I have their kids in my classroom here? Is there, you know, a college student that we can pay to watch the kids outside of the park? I mean, I think we're all working together to make this work for the health and safety of our kids, and it is, um, it's a big, complicated jigsaw puzzle here. So, you yeah, know, I appreciate it's a good way to all describe the advice it. you guys are giving. <clears throat>
1: I think uh, Jigsaw Puzzle, uh, Jigsaw Puzzle with uh, certainly momentous uh, consequences to it. Uh, but Dan, let me get a quick question to you, Jill Tucker. We've got seconds left here, but I'd like you to respond to the question from Danielle, who says, why has the state left every district to decide how to proceed? This lets the teachers union have a great deal of control in some areas and really put students at risk. Why are some counties like San Mateo County so much stricter than other counties, despite our numbers being relatively low?
0: Well, we, we do have local control and education in California. But aside from that, every school county is, is so very different. We have very rural areas, very urban areas. And so there really is no one size fits all. If the state dictated how to open, it would not work for every district.
1: And I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But I want to thank all of our guests. Jill Tucker, thank you for being with us. Thank you. And thank you, Mariah Fisher. Glad to have you with us as well. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Dr. Tanya Altman. Appreciate your being with us.
2: Thank you. I've learned so much from everyone today. It was was great speaking with you.
1: Appreciate all of you who are listeners and all of you who have participated. And we have another hour of forum up ahead. We're going to talk about these surges in the coronavirus. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny.